Hey, I'm Jessamy, and I am a recovering alcoholic. Thank you, Abby. That was very sweet. Um, Abby didn't tell you that she asked me to be her sponsor, and I at first said no. She was reminding me in the car, and she, um, she chased me down afterwards <laughs> and asked me to reconsider, and I am very, very happy that I did because Abby has been willing and awesome to work with, and she's taught me so much this year. So again, I'm Jessamy. I'm an alcoholic, and um, just a little background info. Um, my sobriety date is February 1st, 2016. It was a Monday, um, and the first, obviously. Um, I have a sponsor. She has a sponsor, and I have a bunch of women that I sponsor. Um, my home group is the Tuesday night big book study for women. It meets at St. Francis at 6.30. It's a great group. Um, it is a all-female book study, and we literally go through the book sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, and it's great because the book is where the solution um, is. So it's it's a good big book study if anyone here is female and looking for a big book study. Um, all right, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself and what happened and how I ended up in a room full of alcoholics. Um, I was. Born in New York, so raised in Jersey, so I'm a Yankee, so sorry about that in advance. Um, it's hence why I'm probably loud um, and honest, or just loud anyway. Um, I pretty much just tell it the way I see it. It's just kind of the way I was raised to do. Um, we, you know, my family is, my father is born and raised in Egypt from Cairo, um, so he is from a Muslim background. And my mother is a birthright Quaker from upstate New York. So I'm a Muslim Quaker. <laughs> so I always assumed that was my problem in life, obviously. I mean, you know, it's kind of crazy to be a Muslim Quaker. But actually, the only reason why I would say that that is significant is because um, I don't know how much y'all know about Muslims, but drinking alcohol is immoral in the Muslim religion. So there was no alcoholism that we were aware of on my father's side. Um, I have found out that his mother uh, liked to use legal pills a lot and sometimes illegal drugs as well. So I guess in the Muslim culture, you know, drugs are illegal, but they're not immoral, so it's okay. Um, but other than that, you know, I was raised, my mother's family is just one of those upper crust families from New York that if you don't talk about a problem, it doesn't exist. So I was just always told there was no divorce, no alcoholism. We were you know, perfect as could be. So that just played a part in my denial, I think, for a really, really long time. Um, I will say that my mother has been in a different 12-step program um, in her later years of life. Um, she never worked the 12 steps. Um, and my sister is was married. She's recently divorced, but she was married to an alcoholic for 15 years. So I don't really think that there's much coincidence in that kind of thing happening. But um, my childhood was fine. You know, there was nothing, nothing happened to me. There was nothing that made me an alcoholic that ever occurred to me in my childhood. Um, I had everything that I could ever want. I mean, I had parents. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She baked cookies. She was a little crazy. Yeah, they fought a lot. But everything was, you know, it, it was fine. But like many of us, and I hear this all the time from people in the rooms, you know, Something was just always off with me. Something was just always missing. I always felt out of place and like I didn't connect with people. I was just, you know, I remember just I would bury myself in books just imagining I was someone else and it was like I was just waiting for the mothership to come down and take me back to my people somewhere in the planets out there. Um, but, 
you know, I remember just when I grew up, I, we, I was 15, just turned 15, and my family said, well, we're moving to North Carolina, and now I'm a Jersey girl, so, you know, this is back, and I'm kind of older, too, so this is before there was cell phones and internet and all that good jazz, so this was like culture shock 101, so my parents upped, and I found out I had scoliosis, I got a back brace, they moved us to North Carolina, and I don't know if I had or had not before the age of 15 drank before. I kind of, I can't remember, to be honest. I mean, to be honest, if I'd known I was going to have to come tell my story one day to everyone, I probably would have paid more attention. But I just, between the blackouts and just not remembering, I don't know. So when I was 15, we moved to North Carolina, and um, that was the first time that I can remember drinking was a few weeks after we moved here. I always felt like a fish out of water. I always felt like I didn't belong. And now, you know, you take, this is 1988. I've got, like, teased up hair. You know, I've got acid-washed jeans. I'm listening to Bon Jovi. And we moved to Durham, North Carolina. And there were not a lot of Yankees down here at the time. And so my parents, you know, put me in a school. And I remember I walked into school the first day. And the headmaster took me down into the classroom. And everyone was blonde. And everyone had, and I naturally have really dark hair, by the way. And so everyone was blonde. And they all were wearing floral dresses. And the guys were wearing these duck head shorts. And these, I mean, it was just like, I said, where are the real people? Like, I thought I was being punked because it was crazy. And I just was just uncomfortable. And so I remember that I got invited to a party. I went to a party, and there was a keg there, and I took a drink of beer, and I remember, this is what I remember, is just feeling connected. For the first time ever, I felt connected. You know, that out-of-place feeling just left me. I was not off to the races. You know, I hear people share all the time that they had a drink, and it was like, boom, they were gone, and they were off to the races. And, you know, that wasn't my experience. I got extremely drunk that night. Um, I threw up all over my mother. Um, you know, I woke up the next day and I remember thinking, I want to do that again. And that's pretty much what I did for the next 20 something years of my life. I partied, you know, and alcohol was fun. I, I loved partying. I was good at it. Um, you know, yes, things would happen. Incidents would happen. Um, but you know, I just thought that everybody lived the way I lived. I just thought I hung out with people who partied like I party. We worked hard. We studied hard. I went to college. You know, it was it was what it was. Um, and sometime about when I was 17 years old, I saw my first therapist. And, I, you know, I just, you know, my parents were like, what's wrong with you? And this was a constant theme in my life. You know, any boyfriend I had, my friends, they would always say, what is wrong with you? You have everything. Why aren't you happy? And it was just, I was, it was just me, you know, it was no, nothing was ever enough for me. I was never happy. I just could never seem to find what I was looking for. And the only time where I felt peace and comfort was when I was out drinking and had alcohol in my system. It was like, I couldn't handle anything out there unless I had something, some kind of substance in me to handle it. So, you know, I partied my way through high school. I partied my way through college. And, you know, like I said, there were incidences right and left. You know, I, I would lose my car for like a week at a time. But just doesn't everybody do that? You know, I would go out partying and, you know, I'd have a couple drinks. And sometimes I could manage it and sometimes I couldn't. You know, I mean, one time, you know, I went out, I had a couple drinks. And, you know, I came to and I was in West Virginia with cops in a strip bar. It was like... How'd I get here, you know? But I mean, well, the cops were with me. They weren't, like, arresting me. 
Um, they were friends from my job. Um, but um, <laughs> yes, alcoholics should make friends with cops. It's a good thing to do in a small, I went to school in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and small town. Um, and I worked in a deli and they all came in there. But um, they were the ones that always found my car too, which was nice. Um, so, and I dated the bartender at the one local bar. See, I, I, had, I was good at hooking it up. <laughs> so anyway, so I got through college, you know, and I started to notice that my friends were sort of slowing down on their partying. And that just wasn't really working for me. You know, I, I, I was still at the point where I could manage life and I thought I could manage life, and I thought that I was in control of things. Um, and, you know, I met my husband when I was 25. Um, everything seemed to be going okay, you know, and I, we got engaged. We, I did everything I was supposed to do, you know, because that just seemed what you do, you know. And so we would still party hard on the weekends. We would go out. We were in New York City at the time. We would go out partying. Um, and then, you know, we'd spend the day in bed hungover, recuperating. And I, again, I just thought this is what life was supposed to be like. Um, we got married, and about nine months after we got married, we got pregnant. And I had to stop drinking. And I did for nine months. And at this point in my life, I had started to realize that I drank differently than other people. But as long as I could control it, I thought, okay, that's okay. And so I quit for nine months, and then I didn't drink while I was nursing him for almost a year. So it was almost two years that I did not drink any alcohol except for a couple glasses of wine, you know, for pumping and dumping and whatnot. And then I had slowed down on the work, and I was home with the kids, and my mom had gotten sick um, well, mentally, like right after I had my first child. Um, she had sort of, I had come home, and I was, she was supposed to stay with me after I had the baby. And um, I was... The second, the second day I was home, I'd gotten up to ask her to hold the baby so that I could um, take a shower, and she was, you know, on my sofa. She had three bottles of empty wine, and she was slitting her arm, cutting her arm, you know, and she was bleeding everywhere, and I called my dad, and they came, and they got her, and they took her off, and I just kind of broke apart then, and I, I think that's when, if I recall correctly, I started sort of secretly drinking. You know, up until that point, everything was out in the open. And so I started secretly drinking and thought I could manage it, and everything seemed fine for, you know, about another nine months, and, you know, then the drinking started to be in the morning, and I started to drink a little more, and so I did what every good alcoholic female does. I said, I'll just get pregnant again, because then I can't drink. So I got pregnant again, and for the first time in my life, I had a hard time quitting drinking. So I knew something was off. I knew something was wrong. Um, and I, at this point... Um, I'd love to say that I went through this pregnancy without drinking alcohol, but I did not. I, I didn't drink a lot, but there were moments in time where I just couldn't not drink. You know, that, that was the point where I was at where I realized that something was wrong with me, you know. So I had the baby. I nursed the baby for a little bit, and then I realized, you know, I couldn't not drink. So I stopped nursing the baby. We moved to Greensboro, um, and my drinking sort of took off. Um, so this was probably, this was 2005, and I got sober in 2016. So the next nine years of my life were pretty much just drinking. And, you know, 
I know we all have our stories about drinking and, and, and they're all, you know, they're all pretty much the same story. You know, we just, it's a progressive disease. And I did not know that when I was out there drinking, you know, and I just thought that if I could somehow rest happiness and manage everything, I could, I could make myself happy. And I tried so hard and it was so exhausting. And I, um, you know, I went to therapist after therapist, and I would just sit on their sofa, and I would cry, and I would lie to them, and I would say, you know, you know, you know, they'd say, do you drink? And I would say, oh, you know, two glasses on the weekend, and, but I just, I couldn't seem to get anything, and I know now that my problem was is that I just, I had the inability to form a connection with people. Before I came into these rooms, I'd, I was unable to have an honest relationship with anyone, with my family, with my friends, with my kids, with my husband, with anyone. Um, but I didn't know that that's what was missing in my life. All I knew is that alcohol was the only thing that made me feel better. Um, so I drank and I drank and I drank and I drank. And um, I would flash forward a couple, you know, I'm just going to go to what happened. So the last year and a half um, of my drinking, you know, if anyone ever thinks this is not a physiological disease, you know, they just have to look at the last year or two, you know, I guess for guys it's sometimes longer, but for females, the last year of our drinking, um, you know how many mornings I would wake up and I would go and I would look in the mirror and I would think, you got to cut this out. You know, I would just look at myself and the very next thought that would come through my brain is, I need a drink. And so I um, was in the school, and this was 2015, it was the fall, I was in the school, and a woman um, who my son was friends with came up to me, and we started talking, and you know, we were talking about picking up our kids, and, and she said, well, I just got this new job, and I said, what do you do? And she said, well, I'm a, a behavioral counselor at Fellowship Hall. And I said, what's Fellowship Hall? And she said, it's a rehab facility. And I was like, oh, back away slowly. <laughs> I was like, I don't want her to spell me, you know? So I was like, oh, our kids can't be friends, sorry. So um, I, I, I sort of just filed that information away. And then that, about two weeks later, my parents had taken my kids and my um, husband had gone away for work. And I went on a bender to end all benders for me. I, you know, my husband had this skull vodka that he'd had in his um, closet for years that I was like, my mom had given him and I knew not to touch it, you know, because it was like all wrapped up and whatnot. And I got into that. And three days later, I woke up in um, Winston-Salem in a parking lot of Trader Joe's with a different bottle of vodka on the floor of my car. And I don't know what the, I don't know if I went to work. I don't know what the hell happened. But I was scared, and I knew something something was wrong, and that was sort of the beginning of that end for me. And so then, um, about a month later, you know, I I had another inc really bad incident. I was in um, for me anyway. I was in. I'd had three car wrecks in, in six months. Um, all of them I talked my way out of. Don't ask me how. I don't know. I'd gotten pulled over at 9:30 in the morning. Um, shortly after that by a cop in downtown Greensboro with wine in a solo cup in the middle of my cup holder. And, you know, he's like, you ran a red light. And I was like, I'm sorry. And he just let me go. Because who's drinking at 930 in the morning, you know? Um, and then I was at a Rice Toyota at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon getting my car serviced. And I decided to walk up to Target 
to buy some stuff and some wine. And, and at that point, I was buying these wines in the box because they were easy to hide and crush, and you could wrap them in tinfoil and put them in cereal boxes and get rid of the evidence. And um, I had bought some of that, and I got wasted. You know, I drank them on the way back to the... Um, to the dealership. By the time I got to the dealership, I'd been drinking all day, but by the time I got to the dealership, I was obviously drunk, and they wouldn't let me take my car, and they called the cops, and I called an Uber, and I don't even know what happened, but I called my husband, and you know, I said, I'm sick. Can you get the kids? And I went to bed, and I just remember thinking, oh my God, something's got to change, and my mom and um, dad had invited us to go to London. My brother was working there for Christmas, and um, he was working in London, and we decided to go. So we went to London, and my mother bought a breathalyzer. And she said, because, you know, nobody knew I had a problem. And she bought a breathalyzer, and she said, if you drink, we will kick you out of this house. Um, so I, I was determined to not drink. So I drank in the airport on the way over. I drank on the plane. I got there. I was there for five days. And I didn't drink for three days. I white-knuckled it for three days through that trip. And at this point, I had just had it, you know, and I, we were coming back from somewhere and I'd got, they said, we need milk or something. And I said, well, I'll go to the store and I, I'll get it. And I walked up to the store and this is in London. I walked up to the store and there was um, airplane bottles of wine in the store. And I just remember standing in front of that, that wine, staring at it, just feeling this crushing feeling inside of me. And I... I, I can't remember. I know I bought the bottles, but to be honest, I can't remember if I drank them or not. I started to walk back to the apartment, and I don't know what happened. But I will tell you that when I first came into these rooms and I would share my story, I would say to people, I hope that you never have to feel this way. And now I say to people, I hope one day you get to feel this way. Because at that moment in time, I just had this this sense of like just crushing depression and desperation. And I know now it was a gift. It was the gift of desperation, it was a God shot. And I know now it was a gift that I wasn't looking for, that I didn't deserve, and that I wasn't asking for, but it was a gift of desperation. And I just fell to my knees right by that fence, right out in that street, and I just knew, I knew right then and there that I was gonna die. This disease was going to kill me. And I had known for a long time that I was an alcoholic. I knew I drank too much. I knew I couldn't stop. But there's something about intellectually knowing that you're an alcoholic and actually knowing that you can't do it on your own. And just at that moment in time, I just realized that I was going to die of this disease. I knew that I was either going to kill myself or that the alcohol was going to kill me and I was going to take everyone down with me. And at that moment, I just fell to my knees, and for the first time, I think, ever, I prayed to God to help me because I didn't know what to do. I was so depressed at that moment that I just knew, I knew that I could not live with alcohol because I could not keep drinking like this, but the problem was I knew I couldn't live without it. I did not know how to function. I did not know how to handle you or anyone out there without something in my system to cushion the blow of people. You know, I couldn't handle life on life's terms. And I just, I just knew that the only way out was for me to literally just take my life and go, and that would be the easiest and the kindest thing that I could do. 
And I just felt defeated. And I went back to the house, and I, and I just got into bed, and I cried for probably the next day and a half. And then we got on the plane, and we came home. And the second we got home, I said, I got to get milk. And I went to the grocery store, and I bought alcohol. And I started drinking again. But it was different. I don't know how to explain this. I don't know if anybody's ever drank themselves right, so to speak. It was like the alcohol just wasn't giving me what I needed anymore. No matter how much I put in my body, I just couldn't seem to get there. And so, um, well, I left out part of my story. I had sent that woman that I met in the school, I had sent her an email um, right before we left for the holiday, and I said, I have a friend whose husband is an alcoholic, and he needs help. And so she had sent me somebody's um, number. And so I called that number, and I made an appointment with that woman. And I went in, and I sat on that woman's couch, and I just broke apart. And she's in the program. Um, She used to run an IOP here. And she told me that it wasn't my fault. You know, she told me I had a disease and that... She explained to me, well, first of all, she took out these crazy charts, and she was like, and we have dopamine receptors, and this is what's happening to your, and I had no idea what the hell she was talking about. I was bawling so hard. But she also 12-stepped me, and she told me, I know that now, she told me her story. She told me how desperate she had been, how she had lost her kids, how everything had fallen apart, and how she had gone to AA, and how her life was so much better now. And I just remember hearing two things. One, it's not my fault. And two, there's hope and there's a solution. And so she recommended that I go to rehab right away. Um, But I'm stubborn. And I was like, well, I don't... So, um, because I was willing, you know. So she recommended that I go to AA. And I said, well, I don't know know about that. Um, And so she said, well, what do you want to do? So I said, well, I guess I'll try it. It seems like the lesser of two things, you know. So I went that, um, I left there, and I drank on the way home. I drank that weekend. I started tapering off on Saturday. I'd done this a million times. And Monday morning at 10 a.m., I walked into my first AA meeting. I opened the door to AA, and directly sitting across from me is a woman that I've known since my son was in kindergarten. Our kids have been in class together. And so I'm thinking, oh, shit. You know, oh, my God, I know this woman. Like, she's going to know everything. You know, I just wasn't thinking straight. And so I went around to the back, and I sat down. And I'm, you know, I'm quietly crying in the back. I have no idea what anybody was talking about. And um, I get up after the meeting. You know, they do the chips. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what the chips are. I get up, and I, I try to run out the door. And she and this other woman grab me in the hallway. And they are, um, she goes, I didn't know you were in the program. And I just started bawling. I was like, I'm not. And she's an itty-bitty little thing, and she grabs me, and she's like, I'm so excited for you. You're going to become the woman God's always wanted you to become, and this is just so great, and your life's about to be so wonderful. And I'm sobbing, and there's this other woman just nodding her head. And I'm like, these bitches are crazy. Like, what the hell have I got in my... She's like, and I'm going to be your sponsor. Now, I've never heard of a sponsor, so I'm like, am I in a sorority? Like, what the hell is happening here? And she's like, and, you, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and you're going to come. And it ended up being it was her 22nd sober birthday that day. And she's like, and we're going to have cake? Because um, that's going to be better than drinking. Um, so she, so I left. she's like, you're going to call me at 1 o'clock, and then we're going to go to this meeting tonight. And, 
You know, thank God. I mean, if that's not a God shot, because I have yet to see a single person that I know from outside those rooms in these rooms, and that was almost four years ago. If that's not a God shot that that woman was sitting there when I walked in, I don't know what is. Um, so she took me to that meeting that night, and there was a speaker there, a crazy older woman from Durham, and I thought, well, shit, she's crazier than me. I could do this, too, if she could do it. Um, and, you know, and so she decided she was my sponsor, and, you know, about two days later, my phone rang, and you didn't call me. And I was like, well, I didn't know. Is there a rule book? You didn't tell me I was supposed to call you. And um, she's like, you need to come over right now. So I went to her house, and we started reading the big book. Um, and she's like, you need to go to a meeting every day. You need to get a home group. You need to get service. I mean, she was hardcore. And I was like, you know, I felt like a toddler. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, they had given me a chip at the end of that meeting. And I was carrying that chip around me everywhere. Because, you know, I, didn't go, I, I was right off the streets. And I had not not drank in so long that I was just so petrified of drinking. You know, about four days into my sobriety, I had to go pick up a... a a uh, prescription at CVS for my child. And CVS is where they sell the little boxes of wine that I liked on the end caps. So I had taken my chip and I had stuck it in my bra right here so that it was, you know, so that I'd have it with me. And I was walking back from the prescription counter and I stopped in front of those, that end cap of those wines right there. And I swear to God, the chip started vibrating, you know, and I freaked out, dropped everything and ran out to my car. I know now that my, it was just because I put it over my heart and my heart was beating so hard, but I thought the chip was vibrating. I was like, oh, shit, the chip works. <laughs> so I went to, you know, I did everything that she said and I started to work the steps and, you know, I did, you know, step one, I feel like I had done it, you know, out there on the streets. Um, step two, you know, step three, we started talking about God and I was like, eh, I don't know about this God thing. And she said, well, are you willing to believe that I believe? And I was like, yeah, I'm willing to believe you believe, but you know, I'm Muslim Quaker, so, you know, I can't really get on board with that. Um, and so we started to work on step four. I tried to cheat. I'm going to admit that on step four. I started, like, I was looking for the cliff note versions online because I was going to copy somebody else's. I just, I mean, I just was so, my brain was so fuzzed up. And I was like, I don't, ha I don't hate anybody. I don't have any resentments. I'm not mad at anybody. Um, but, you know, eventually I did, oh, well, no, I went through a phase where I was going to burn the big book because I did have a resentment against the big book and my sponsor. I did a four-step on her, too, while I was doing my four-step. That was easy. Um, so I did my four-step. She came over, and she did the, we did the fifth step. And, you know, uh, she said, okay, I want you to sit quietly and reflect. And I did that. And I was about three months sober when all this was happening because she was like, a, she's like, do you want to feel better? Do you want to feel better? We're going to work the steps. And um, so I did that, and then, you know, I was like, oh, six and seven, this is easy. It's only like a paragraph. I got that. <laughs> Nobody told me I was going to be doing it for the rest of my life. Um, and so then I got obsessed with the, um, what was happening. You know, when, when was this miracle? You know, they keep saying, wait for the miracle. You know, just wait for the miracle. And I was like, well, how come nobody will tell me what the miracle is? So I got obsessed with the miracle and the spiritual experience. And I wanted to know when it was going to happen for me and when the lightning bolt was coming. And I kept asking everybody, what was yours? What was yours? What was your miracle? What was your spiritual experience? And while all of this was going on and I was doing all of this, you know, it occurred to me one day I woke up and I thought, I haven't thought about drinking in 24 hours. 
when the hell has that ever happened to me? And I thought, holy crap, I've had my miracle. <laughs> I was so excited. I was like, I love AA. Um, and so, um, well, I forgot what I was talking about. Um, anyway, so I was working the steps. So, you know, I, I, I forgot what I was saying. What was I saying? Oh, we're doing six and seven. That's right. <laughs> and then, you know, we got to the amends uh, step, and I made a list of people. And, you know, a lot of people share that they don't like making their amends. I, I you know, a couple of them were hard, um, but the amends step to me, it was like, at this point in my life, you know, I felt like I was becoming a new person, you know, and I kept saying before I got to these rooms, AA is, they're going to brainwash you. They're going to brainwash you in AA. But, you know, if we're being honest, my brain needed to be washed. Um, so it's a good thing that they brainwashed me. I, um, I wanted to be a new person. I wanted to have a clean side of the street. I wanted to start over. I, I wanted everything to be different because what I had before was not working for me. I mean, I was miserable. All I did was complain, bitch, and I was never, ever happy. And so when I found out that this, these amends were going were gonna to clean my side of the street, I was like, let's do it. You know, I started doing them without my sponsor's insight, which was probably not the best idea. But, you know, my sister and I hadn't spoken in over three years. Uh, she was married to an alcoholic, so obviously me being an alcoholic was not really a um, good vibe for her. Um, but I called her. She was the first amends that I made. Um, and we are best friends now. And that is one of the beauties of this program, you know, is that you get to start over, you get to make amends, and you get to clean your side of the street. And I'm still making amends. I mean, two weeks ago, so when I was, I, I sell radio for a living. And when I was that last year when I was drinking, I had a client who I showed up drunk at their office. And I, um, took notes. And later when I got sober, I was looking at my notebook and everything. I mean, it looked like, some, looked like a two-year-old had written it. I mean, I couldn't even read what the hell I'd written with these notes. And it was during, you know, they'd started on when I was still drinking. And then they were there those first couple months when I was useless getting sober. And that's pretty much all I could do was get sober. I really couldn't do much else. And, um, I had always felt like I had let them down, you know, and that they had not gotten anything from me. And just two weeks ago, they called me and they said, hey, we want to get back on the radio. And I thought, oh, Lord, what am I going to do about this? And I went out there and I prayed about it and I went out there and I sat there with them and I wasn't sure what I was going to say, but I told them the truth. I said, look, I'm sorry. I was going through some really hard emotional things the last time I worked with you and I didn't give you, didn't do my best job. And I just wanted to apologize. And of course I started to cry and they were like, what are you talking about? We thought you were great. So I was like, okay. Um, so they obviously weren't paying attention, but I ended up telling them I was an alcoholic, you know, and that I was sorry. And it was just another chance for me to do the right thing. And that's what I love so much about this program is that we get to do the right thing now. You know, I spent so much of my life lying, stealing, hiding things, doing the wrong thing, screwing people, being a victim. Um, everything that happened was never my fault. It was always somebody else's fault. You know, I spoke victimese fluently. Um, and now it's like I, I can take responsibility. And the beauty of that is, is that I can now say without a shadow of a doubt that I can form a connection with people these now. You know, I have formed friendships in these rooms with sponsees that I've worked with. I mean, I have built a wall so damn high to keep everybody out because I didn't want to get hurt or I thought, 
you know, you guys, that everybody was just crazy and I was the only sane one. And every time that I work with a sponsee now, it's like one of those bricks just comes out of that wall and it allows me to get closer to you guys. Um, and I have found a higher power, and that has been the saving grace for me from, the, from this program. I mean, this is a spiritual program, you know, not a religious program, a spiritual program. And it took me a while to distinguish the difference because I had a problem because of my upbringing with organized religion. Um, but the spiritual part, you know, is a part that I don't have, I can't, I don't have a problem with. And, you know, it was like, once I realized that my, I call God, was in charge and that I wasn't in charge. It was like this huge weight had been lifted off of me. And it always cracks me up with alcoholics because it's like, you know, we think, you know, it says in the big book how we think, you know, we're the director and we're going to manage people. And if people would just do what we wanted, everything would be okay. And it's like only alcoholics can be like, here's God, here's me. Who's, who's, who's in charge here, you know? Um... And just giving it over to my higher power has changed pretty much everything about my life. And then the rooms of AA. So the solution I found in the steps, you know, the solution is in the big book. But then the fellowship of AA, I mean, you guys are the ones that teach me how to function in everyday life. You know, you've taught me things like it doesn't matter. You know, it's none of my business what other people think about me. And you've told me to stay in my own lane and mind my own business, which is really, really hard for me um, because I think I know best about everything. Um, and you've taught me to love other people. You know, you've taught me that it is okay to, especially with other women, it's okay to want women to do well and to love them and to care about them and to nurture them. And it's, it's been a godsend, you know. I mean... I love AA so much. I love the program of AA. I love the fact that we are all alcoholics and that there is a solution in that big book. I, I don't, I feel like it's a, almost like a secret that, you know, I know we can't do it, but I, that we need to like share with the world because it's like, you know, so I'm always trying to get people, I'm like, you know, there's 312 step programs and there's even one for people who you could just join one of those ones. Because I think if everyone in the world would work the 12 steps, they would understand, you know, what happiness is. And the ironic part for me is that my whole life I spent crying and whining and wanting to be happy and searching for something. And what I know now is I was searching for that spiritual experience. And alcohol was my spiritual experience until it stopped working for me. And now I have the higher power as my, sp my spiritual experience. And that um, everything I was searching for outside of the rooms, ironically, is what I found inside of the rooms. Um, and you know, if you take nothing away from this talk, um, I, I, all I can say is the, the answer's in the book. The secret's in the book. The solution's in the book. You just have to work those steps and be honest and willing, you know, to do what your sponsor tells you because it makes no sense to me why it works. I mean, sometimes I sit there and I think, why the hell does this work? I don't even get it. But it works, you know. A little bit get chipped away and so that the spiritual can get in. And it just happens, whether you want it to or not. If you stay in these rooms long enough and you work the steps, it will happen. Um, and I think, you know, thank God I met my sponsor the way that I did. And thank God that I've become the woman, hopefully, or am becoming the woman that God always wanted me to become. And so thank you guys for letting me share.